Uh, turning your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 6, verses 20 through 23. If you're visiting with us, uh, typically a sermon takes about a half an hour, so if you want to calculate when it'll be over, that's how you do it. You just look ahead, and it'll be about 30 minutes. Uh, so sit back and relax and uh, give your attention uh, to the message from God's Word. Now, in the flow of the book of Luke, he, Jesus has just called his apostles in chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. That's the passage immediately preceding our own. Uh, he called those apostles from out of the great crowd of disciples, as they're called in verse 17, which are then part of an even greater group. So we have something like concentric circles. We have the inner circle of the apostles, and then a great crowd of disciples, and then there's this great multitude of onlookers who are curiosity seekers. Uh, then in chapter 6, verse 20, the beginning of our passage, we have the first major teaching occasion to be found in Luke's gospel, and we entitle that the Sermon on the Plain. And what Jesus is explaining there is what the disciples are to believe and what they are to practice, what's to be the way of life that is to characterize uh, the disciples, what is it that God requires of them. And Jesus begins with four beatitudes, as we call them. Uh, the word itself is from the Latin word beatitudo, uh, meaning blessed. Uh, these are the ideals of the Christian life. They are the virtues that God favors. Uh, they are at one and the same time. They are uh, admired and repeated and typically misunderstood. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to make some general observations about the four Beatitudes. There are eight of them in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Plain has four of the Beatitudes, four of those eight, but it supplements that then with four woes. And so we'll be looking at those in, in successive weeks. So what are we to understand about these Beatitudes? Number one, they are ideals to which believers are to aspire. Uh, we are to aspire to them. We are to pursue these ideals. So as soon as I say that, I, wa I want to provide a caveat. And, and that is just to notice that this sermon where Jesus is going to explain how we are to behave ourselves and what's to characterize uh, us as disciples of Jesus, it begins not with imperatives. It doesn't begin with command commands. It begins with blessing. And I, that serves to remind us that grace is at the foundation of the life of the disciple. Uh, these, uh, these ideals, these uh, virtues, they're not something that we are going to generate on our own, something that we're able to produce on our own. This is not something for which we have the capacity. We don't have the ability uh, to be characterized by the ideals that Jesus teaches. This is why in Galatians chapter 5, the apostle Paul refers to them as the fruit of the Spirit. It's by the grace of God, it's by the Spirit of God uh, that love and joy and peace and so forth, the various uh, ideals of the Christian life uh, are fully realized in the life of the believer. We're not able to do this. We don't have the energy to do it. We don't, we don't, we don't have the, uh, the moral uh, aptitude to do this. We are dependent upon the grace of God and the Spirit of God. We're dependent upon the Spirit of Christ if we are to be conformed to the image of Christ who, above all others, is, is the one that's characterized 
uh, by these, by these uh, Beatitudes. So they're not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not the result of our own determination or our own effort or our own will. Rather, uh, it's necessary that, that uh, God intervene, that he act first. So it's, it's, um, it's those who are born again, as Jesus taught in John chapter 3, who are transformed, uh, born of the Spirit, transformed by the Spirit, who are buried with Christ in baptism and, and raised up to live a new life, who are new people in Christ, or in the language of, of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a passage we frequently go to, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. We become new people. The old passes away. All things become new. So we say that at the outset. These are ideals to which we are to aspire, but we do so realizing that we are dependent upon the grace of God. We're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are to mortify the flesh, but if uh, the way the Apostle Paul puts that is, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. How do we do it? We do it by the Spirit. He alone gives us the strength. And yet, again, back to the point, we are to aspire to them. We, we are to pursue them. Uh, these ideals are to be our ideals. Uh, we, we are to strive for uh, the poverty of spirit. We're to strive for uh, our hunger and, and thirst for uh, the kingdom of God and, 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 and so forth. So these virtues, they are not the keys that open up the gates of heaven. They are rather what is true of those for whom the gates of heaven have already opened. They describe what Christians are meant to be, what we are to become, and by the grace of God we do become. That's number one. And number two, these ideals are those which are despised by the world. Uh, there's, there's a surprising element to them. Uh, one of the commentators refers to the Beatitudes as bombshells, kind of hurled onto the playground of the theologians and the ecclesiastics. So who are those who are blessed and approved and favored by God? Uh, well, look at what he says. It's those who are poor. They're characterized by poverty. Are they the, peop the people that are hungry, the people that are, that are shedding tears, who are weeping and are grief-stricken. It's those who are socially rejected. That's what's explained in verses uh, 20 through 23. Uh, these are the very thing that the world despises and, uh, and flees. And yet Jesus uh, identifies them as ideals. Uh, Thomas Watson, a Puritan commentator, uh, really spoke for many of us, I think, when he, he, he said, if, 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 if this is the blessed life, Lord, deliver me from it. Uh, none of us want to, be, to live a life of poverty or, 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 of, or of hunger or of grief or of social isolation and social rejection. And, and yet that's what Jesus says is characteristic of uh, the disciples, his disciples. Uh, some of the commentators have pointed out, I think rightly, that blessed should not be translated happy. Uh, happy uh, happiness as it's typically used in, in modern times is, is far too superficial, the concept uh, far too dependent upon uh, circumstances and, 
and to secular pleasures and, and, and so forth. And the, that what, what Jesus has in mind in pronouncing blessed, those who are characterized by these ideals, is something that is much, much deeper. And nevertheless, the world despises these things. It, it doesn't want poverty, it wants riches. The world wants not uh, uh, hunger, but fullness. It wants not uh, grief, but celebration. It, it wants not uh, isolation and rejection, but popularity and social acceptance. So why, why are the disciples blessed when they are characterized by these ideals? Because this is what is approved and favored by God, whose opinion in the end alone counts. And in addition, that these are the blessings which alone satisfy. All right, this is what we sign up for as believers. And yet, in the end, it's only the approval of God that ultimately brings satisfaction and fullness. The very things that the world, in its understanding of things, despises. Because in his favor, we do have peace and joy. It's a, it's a deeper happiness. And, you know, John Newton in that great hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, speaks of the fading of the worldling's pleasures with all of its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. So yes, these are the despised, these are the despised ideals of the world, but nevertheless, they're the ones that be pursued by the disciples of Jesus. Number three, these spiritual ideals uh, have some correspondence with their physical parallels. So we are saying that these are spiritual ideals. And uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in fact, was explicit about this in, in ways that he's not explicit. In the Sermon on the Plain, uh, nevertheless, we can go to Matthew to, get, to, to broaden our understanding of what Jesus has in mind here, where he specifies what Luke does in Luke's gospel is not specified. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, the, you know, Luke, we'd have to say, deliberately in, in his account of this sermon, omits any kind of interpretive key like we find in the Sermon on the Mount in, 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 in Matthew's gospel. So what's, what's the significance of that? The fact that in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's gospel, it's, and, and in the Sermon on the Plain, it's just blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. No mention of after righteousness. What's, why the omission? It's deliberate. Well, I think the reason for the omission is because there is a correspondence between physical poverty, physical hunger, and piety. There, there is a connection between poverty and piety. Ever thus it has been. Why would that be? Well, because when one is rich in the things of this world, one tends not to be as keenly aware as, uh, of one's need of God. The rich don't need God. They have everything they need. Their lives are full. They, 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 they have all that they need to uh, to provide themselves with pleasure and comfort and safety and, and satisfaction. Uh, the poor, on the other hand, they are right living on the edge of disaster. Something goes wrong and, 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 and they face destitution. And, and so, given that reality with which 
the poor are living, that the rich are not living, there tends to be a greater likelihood that there will, they will depend upon God. They will rely upon God. They will call out to God for help. They, they have a keen awareness of their, their, their vulnerability, of, their, of their, their weakness and the dangers that they face than do those who are fully supplied in the things of this world. And, and, and in the Sermon on the Plain, for circumstances or reasons that we don't quite understand, Jesus is, is maximizing the correspondence. And that's not to say that there are not those who are very devout who, who, who are wealthy. Not at all. And that's not to say that the poor themselves are in, inherently um, devout. Because there's plenty of poor people who are anything but uh, devout. But nevertheless, there is this correspondence and Jesus is highlighting it. He, he's pointing this out, even though ultimately there's no virtue in poverty and hunger and grief, and there's no evil in wealth and affluence, yet because of the correspondence, Jesus is warning us about the dangers of affluence. And as he does, we want to remind ourselves, nevertheless, that the ideals are spiritual. He is painting a picture of the internal life of the, of the believer. And they, they are characterized then by poverty of spirit. They, they, they are characterized by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. They, they are characterized by grief for their sin. And they are rejoicing even in social isolation and rejection. Uh, number four, then these ideals are rooted in a eternal perspective. Uh, so number one, they are ideals to which believers are to aspire. Number two, they are despised by the world. Number three, there is a correspondence between these spiritual ideals and their physical parallels. And, and number four, these ideals are rooted in an eternal perspective. So th we, see, we see this beginning, beginning in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now that primarily lies in the future. It's not, it's not fully realized in this world. It's only ever partially realized. So that, that points, uh, the, uh, points us in, in, into, into the future, beyond this world, into eternity. Uh, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. You're not going to be satisfied now. Uh, the blessed people are not satisfied now. They, 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 they understand that and experience privation. He's talking about that which is going to be realized in eternity. Uh, verse, uh, the next part of verse 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall. That's all in the future. You shall laugh. Uh, verse 21, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Uh, verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. Where? In heaven. He's pointing them to the eternal, the ideals that Jesus is teaching, these virtues that he is, by which he is characterizing the life of his disciples. These are rooted in an eternal perspective. So that what Jesus is doing is encouraging his disciples to live not for the moment and not for the present and not for now and not for this world and this life, but for eternity, for the next world, for God. 
And in many ways, this is the fundamental difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Psalm 17, 14 speaks of the unbelieving world whose portion is in this life. It's in this world. It's now. It's present. What they seek after, what they live for, what they pour their energies into are all in terms of this world. It can be in the short term and it can be in the long term. You think of the short termers. Uh, this, this would be the individual who works Monday through Friday, gets his paycheck, then goes and consumes the entire paycheck Friday night and Saturday, uh, recovers on Sunday, and then brags about his exploits uh, Monday through Friday. And then the next Friday rolls around, and he gets his paycheck, and then he just, he just uh, uh, he, he, he then repeats the pattern. He does this week after week after week. What's he living for? He's living for the moment for the immediate pleasure. He doesn't have the long-term in view. It's just now. It's just all, life is all about uh, the comforts now and the pleasures now and the excitement now. He's living for the moment. Uh, but that's, that's not the only kind of worldly perspective. Then there's also those who are the long-term. Uh, for the short-term, the extent of their ambition is the weekend. For the long-term, no, they've got a longer view uh, they're, they're going to go to school and, and achieve. They're going to earn, earn diplomas and degrees. They have career ambitions. They hope some uh, day to be wealthy and popular and renowned and respected and powerful and admired. And so they're willing to make sacrifices in order to build the business or build a profession or climb the corporate ladder or make their fortune or gain access by power. They are interested in, in getting by and getting along and getting ahead in this age, in this world, in this time. Both the short-termer and the long-termer are limited in their goals to this world. That is the difference. They can see no further than the rewards that are to be found in this world, in its commodities, in its comforts and pleasures, in its fame and status, in its power and prestige. Let me ask the question, is this not how the vast majority of people are living? Is this not a, a true characterization of how the overwhelming number uh, of, of our fellow citizens are living? They're living for now, whether it's short term or it's long term. They're not thinking about the next life. They're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about uh, eternity. Uh, when I was a newly ordained minister, I went and visited a, a man in the hospital who was dying, who was very wealthy, and one of the last things he ever said to me was, there's a lot of money to be made out there. He seemed to be reluctant to be dying because if he weren't, he could continue to live and just continue to generate more income. That, that was his whole perspective. That was his whole outlook. And I suspect that in and that, to that degree, he's, he's not all that different than, than your, your, average, your average person uh, today. So the, the Christian, though, what Jesus is indicating by the eternal perspective that, that he is shaping here in this, these Beatitudes is that our motivation is to be different. We see this life as a preparation for the next life. Life is short. Eternity is long. It's far more important to do well in the next life than to do well in this life, because this life will soon be over, and the next life will go on forever and ever and ever. So, uh, we, we have a different motivation then, don't we? Second uh, Corinthians 5.9, uh, the Apostle Paul there says, uh, make it your 
ambition to be pleasing to God. But what's, uh, what's your ambition in life? What is it you really want to do? What, what are you aiming at? What's your goal? Oh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, it ought to be this. It ought to be that you would be pleasing to God. That's very simple. Whatever I do, I, I want to please Him. That's how I want to live my life. That's how I want to live privately. That's how I want to live publicly. That's how, what I want to characterize my family, everything about me. What is it I want to do? What's my aim? What's my goal? What's my ambition? Oh, I just want to please God. Life is very simple in that respect, isn't it? That's the motivation of the Christian. We want to please God. We get ahead in this world, that's fine. If we don't, that's fine too. Just so long as I am serving, obeying, and pleasing God. That's all that matters to me. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, all to the glory of God. Eat, drink, the most mundane of activities, most ordinary of activities. You know, we eat, we drink, we sleep. Uh, what, what, what's to be our aim? What's our goal? What's our ambition? What is it that motivates us, whether we're digging ditches or writing legal briefs? It's all to be to the glory of God. That's not the motivation of the worldling. No, they're, they're living for the moment. Jesus gave very succinct expression to what ought to be the priorities of us all when he said, when he asked, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That is a way of focusing the mind, doesn't it? You gain the whole world. You've got everything it has to offer. Everything. All the pleasures, all the comforts, all the status, all the fame, all the fortune, uh, all the prosperity, all the wealth that you can imagine, you have it all. You've gained the entire world. All the houses, the real estate, the cars, the, 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 the wardrobes. And you lose your own soul? How, does that, how do you weigh that out? The value of your soul, its eternal destiny, versus the commodities, the things of this world, and you gain them all, you manage to be so much smarter than everyone else and so much harder working that you have gained everything that the world has to gain, and then you lose your own soul? How did you do? You lost, didn't you? You blew it, didn't you? You lived for the wrong things. You, you, you had the wrong motivation. You walked the wrong path. You were heading in the wrong direction for your entire life. Why? Because you were motivated by this world. And Jesus is saying of his disciples, we're not motivated by this world. We are living for the next world, and so we're willing to forsake wealth and be poor and forsake fullness and hunger and forsake pleasure and rather grieve and forsake social acceptance and embrace social rejection because we're not living for now. Our family enjoyed the companionship of two uh, Jack Russell Terriers over a period of a number of years. And those Jack Russell Terriers lived for three things, eat, sleep, and get scratched. All right, that's all they lived for. And one of them would crawl up into my lap and I would scratch his backsides. Were I to pause, for even a moment, his snout would immediately turn around and nudge my hand back to his backsides to continue the scratching. I think that's the way a lot of people live. It's all about comfort. It's all about getting all of the itches scratched. 
It's all about all the pleasures of this world. It's all about ha surrounding oneself with beautiful things and uh, having wonderful vacations and accumulating uh, all, all of the gadgets and the, and the, and the toys of, of, the, of this world. It's all about right now. It's all about the immediate. And they're not thinking about eternity. They just want to have their itches scratched. They just want to have uh, a good meal. They, ju they just want to get the rest and relaxation uh, that, that they want. They live like beasts. They're like the Jack Russell Terriers. That's how they're living life. That's how the average person is living. Jesus says that's not to be characteristic of his disciples. We have higher aims, higher goals than personal gratification. I, I think that the problem of the world is a problem of the church as well. Uh, J. Gresham Machen in his book written 100 years ago called Christianity and Liberalism, talking about theological liberalism. Christianity is one thing, liberalism is another. That's the key to the title, Christianity and liberalism. These are two different things. But he talks about the, the liberal gospel, liberal progressive gospel. He, he points out it's, it's all about the improvement of humanity. It's all about the well-being in society, in the present. That's what they had made of the gospel. Christianity, the gospel, is all about uh, pr 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 um, improving things in society, in the culture. I think we could add to his critique uh, that uh, much of significant uh, segment of, of uh, contemporary conservative Christianity, evangelical Christianity, is not uh, so concerned about the social, but very concerned about the individual, individual well-being, particularly psychological well-being, emotional well-being. That's the way the gospel is presented. That's what it's meant to be all about. So whether we're talking about the, what, what uh, rightly was called the social gospel or what I think correctly and accurately today is called the therapeutic gospel, in both cases, they're about this world. One's concerned about society. The other's concerned about the individual. But it's all wrapped up in how we are doing now and in the present and in this world, whether it's society or the individual. And our psychological sense of things as, as individuals. Whereas what Jesus is saying is those who are blessed are those who are pursuing the kingdom of God and the rewards of heaven. And are willing to forsake this world's rewards for the sake of the rewards of the next. So these are, these are the, the ideals that we'll be looking in in the, in the next several weeks. These are to be characteristic of the children of God. These, these, these are to characterize uh, the disciples. These are the virtues that Jesus commends to us. And so I want to commend them to you. I want to remind us that uh, no, 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 we, we're not able to generate this on our own. It's only by the grace of God. It's only by the Spirit of God. It's only as we are born of the Spirit that uh, these uh, virtues will be fully realized in our lives. Nevertheless, we are to aspire to them. We are to pursue them and, and, and seek from the heart uh, to see ourselves increasingly characterized by them as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice, O oh Lord, in Jesus 
as a teacher. We receive him not only as Lord and Savior, but as teacher. We pray that we would love what he loves and cherish what he cherishes and embrace what he embraces and become what he designs for us to become. Let these ideals, we pray, be fully realized in our lives. And we pray, O Lord, that we would aspire to them and pursue them with all of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.